0: Amen. How many of you enjoyed that music? Amen. We give the Lord a hand. You know, the thing is, is um, sometimes it's hard to be still. The the worship team did such a good job. If you guys could only see behind the scenes, we were having technical glitches last night, this morning. Somehow the Lord pulled it off and sometimes it's hard to be still in a world that's chaotic and crazy. But whenever you're still, in your stillness, you know that God's in control of all things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you're going to be in 1 Peter today, chapter number 2. And um, as you turn there, a little preview for next week. We're going to talk about a marriage made in heaven. So, bring a friend. If you're single, it's okay. You get a little preview of what's to come, perhaps. Amen. So, Um, We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to talk about a passage that many of you are familiar with. Uh, Many of you have seen the bracelets, what would Jesus do, and um, the the bumper stickers. Well, that's all based upon this passage we're going to talk about today, about following in his steps. And sometimes it's hard to follow in the steps of Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's challenging. I can remember about 10 years ago, I just graduated from college and um, I was getting settled in, I, I had a jo- job at the Asheville Mall, and I uh, wasn't really doing what I wanted to do. And out of that, um, God kind of gave me a radical step that I was, was kind of uncertain about. It was from Genesis 12, where God told Abraham to leave your family, leave what you, what's unknown, and go to the unknown, and I'll make you a blessing. So he called me to move to the great state of Texas. Anybody from Texas in here? No, if you were, you'd be yelling out because people in Texas hoop and holler, yeah, you know, very exciting. So I moved to Texas and uh, went to seminary and it was hard because I'm, I'm from a big family of six and all my, pretty much all my family's here today. They're in the center row right here, but I'm the youngest of six. So being the youngest, um, I'm just so used to being around my family. So that was the hardest thing to leave my family, get away, 15 hour drive, I packed up my Camry, everything I owned could fit in the car, and went down to Texas. And little did I realize, it was so many challenges that were awaiting me. Um, finding a place to live, getting a job, uh, learning how to do your own clothes. That sounds really bad, but uh, my mother was like the world's greatest mom, and she did not my clothes. So I had to learn how to wash clothes, and they were wrinkled half the time, but... Um... <laughs> So, um, but I went there for a few years and then I came back and what God brought me from and what he brought me through prepared me for what's today. And now I'm back in Asheville, the place I love and with my family. But the challenge was sometimes following in his steps, sometimes there's challenges, sometimes there's suffering, sometimes there's things that beyond your control. But Jesus has laid out an example that we should follow in his steps. And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It starts off with, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, in today's culture, we don't have uh, slaves per se in the U.S., but we do have employers and employees. And in this day and time in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman culture, as much as half as the Roman Empire were slaves. That's a pretty high percentage, and perhaps even more were Christians who were slaves. So he's saying, listen, you're in a bad situation, but try to make the best out of it. He says, "For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. So in other words, if you know to do the right thing and you get suffering because of it, you know, God's going to help you and he honors that. It says, but what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? So he's saying, like, if you get persecuted because you do wrong, you can't blame God for it. You can't say, I, I get a reward because now I'm suffering. Um, some things we bring on ourselves, and then we like to blame who for it? God, right? But when you do good and suffer and take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And here's the, the main verse of our text, 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit founded in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, before we read to the next two verses, think about that. When you are persecuted, when you are treated badly, isn't it the easiest to respond in like manner? You treat me bad, someone will respond badly. So Jesus leaves us an example that's impossible, apart from the help of the Holy Spirit, to do. When someone insults you, you return a blessing instead. That's not natural, that's supernatural. And it says, verse 24, this is, talking about his substitutionary death and atonement on the cross, he says, "...who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree." And by the way, in the Greek, our sins, it's emphatic. It's like, this is not anything he did, it was on you, you and I, our sins. And it says, "...that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray." but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let us pray over God's word. Father, thank you for your word. We ask and pray that we would learn what it means to walk in his steps. One step and one day and one moment at a time. Father, we read your word, speak to our heart, and help us to be transformed through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to talk about what it looks like to walk in the steps of Jesus. And it's like growing up, I used to see the bracelets, what would Jesus do? Well, what would Jesus do were he in your place? The first thing is this, work as though you were working for the Lord. And in this context, it's talking to people who were in a bad job situation. They, they didn't just have an employer, but they were a slave. Have you ever worked on a job that where you felt like you were a slave? Anybody been there? You're like, slavery's no longer there, but I felt that way. I could think of job examples where I felt like, man, what, what am I doing here? Back to the Texas story, when I moved back, um, before I, the Lord opened a, a job at a church, um, I ended up working at a place where I had worked in high school at Chick-fil-A. Anybody love the Holy Bird Chick-fil-A? That's great, isn't it? It closed on Sunday, so I, I can't tell you too much about it because you'll want to go there and you can't because it's closed. So, I, I went back and I went, they hired me as a manager and I thought, you know, I'll be overseeing a crew or whatever. But they had me out sweeping the parking lot as a manager. And I'm like, this, this just seems wrong. Like, I just get back from seminary. I'm edumacated, you know. And, and here I am working at a fast food restaurant, sweeping the parking lot. God, there's got to be something more than this, right? And one moment while I was sweeping the parking lot, I, that little, still, small voice, be still and know that I'm God. I felt the Lord speaking to me. Timothy, remember, every trial is a teacher. And trials are meant to teach you something. So here's the general rule, the general principle. The quicker you learn the lesson, the quicker you get out. The quicker you learn the lesson, the quicker you get out. So that's true for most trials. Now, there are some trials that are lifelong, like illnesses, but even they are temporary because you're going to live forever, right, in heaven. So every trial is temporary. But most trials here on earth have an expiration date. So when God was speaking to me about every trial as a teacher, the quicker you learn the lesson, the quicker you get out, I'm thinking, okay, what do you think God's trying to teach me sweeping this parking lot? Does anybody know? Humility. You got it. Ding, ding. So I instantly had that epiphany. That light bulb went off. Timothy, God's trying to humble you. You better learn humility. So I'm like, okay, God, I'm going to learn this as fast as I can. So I started sweeping. I was like, maybe I should praise the Lord while I'm doing this. This may help. Maybe I should sing a song. It was just a matter of a few months before I was out of there. The Lord had opened up another door. And that's how it often is. If you will work as though you're working for the Lord. It says in Colossians three twenty three and 24. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord and not to men. For it is the Lord Jesus Christ you're serving. And from him you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So in other words, everything you do. What would happen if you saw your work as worship. What would happen in the 9 to 5 Or some of you work crazy 12-hour shifts, some of you work night shifts. I know Jim has been working night shifts at Walgreens and he's still showing up brewing coffee in the morning, which I'm like, how do you do that, Jim? You must be drinking the coffee on the way to the church. But, you know, how do you show up to work and you view work as worship? Think about almost half of your adult life is spent working, Right? What would it be like if you did what Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Because by the way, we're all going to die one day, and when you die, we're going to be with the Lord, but you only have one life to live here on this side of eternity. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So here's, here's the thing. As you go to work tomorrow, and some of you are an accountant, some of you are teachers, teachers, some of you work with the public. Some of you work in the fast food industry. What would happen if you showed up Monday and you saw your work as an act of worship? we got a video to see what that would look like.
1: Work. Most of us spend over half our lives at work. Whatever it is you fill the nine-to-five with, planting crops, building cars, taking care of patients, teaching students, or running a business. Work is where most of life happens. For some, work is a drain. They dread Monday mornings, forcing themselves to struggle through because they need the paycheck, while many times feeling trapped and beaten down by their job. Some people love their work. They're good at what they do. It energizes them. It's a place of security, a place to chase dreams, desires, and success. At work, they find fulfillment. We often forget to connect our faith to our work. We don't consider the reasons God may have us at our job. We don't think about the purpose and meaning we could bring to our work. We simply focus on how it makes us feel. But what if we saw our work as an opportunity to worship? As Christians, we are called to serve Christ with our lives. For a few, that means working as a pastor, a youth minister, or a missionary. Others serve the church by teaching children or singing in the choir. But when Sunday is over, most of us return to our jobs outside the church. For us, our mission is in the marketplace. We may not be the kind of missionary who moves to the far regions of Africa, but around the conference table, around the water cooler, around the cubicle, we have an opportunity to worship the God who created us. He gave us skill. He gave us passion. He gave us work. When we do our jobs with excellence and integrity and diligence, it's an act of worship. We are displaying God's craftsmanship to the non-believing world around us. We are earning the right to be heard. We don't see a divide between Sunday and Monday, between the sacred and the secular. We've been invited into parts of the world that a pastor or traditional missionary will never see. We have conversations with people who would never set foot in a church. Whether we love or dread our work, We choose to turn the focus away from ourselves and toward the mission God has for us. Church is not the only place we worship. And Sundays are not the only days in our calendars that have meaning. Every day on mission for God brings us great joy. Like the heroes before us, we can be modern-day Noahs and Josephs and Peters who are called with a purpose. God has designed us. He created us to work and to worship. For us, work is worship.
0: So whenever you work as an act of worship, the watching world gets a glimpse of the God who lives inside of you. And people act, why are you working so well and doing such a good job? It's because it's for an audience of one. And people begin to take note, amen? So work as though you're working for the Lord. Number two, how to walk in his steps, is think with an overcomer's mentality. I want you to look back in your scripture, verse 19. It says, for this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. So, you know, an overcomer's mentality is this. In the end, God's going to win. In the end, even though people may be against me, who is for me? God, right? So, I I didn't get permission to tell this, but it's a good story. Any of you know Madison? Where's Madison at? Okay, she's in here somewhere. I didn't see her waving, but... She was in a school production recently. And some of you know the story already. And there was a part that she was supposed to sing that she felt was irreverent towards God. So she told her teacher that she wasn't going to sing that part. She was going to change the words. And I can just imagine the pushback she probably got. But, you know, in this world, we're going to have to face choices that may go against the crowd. And sometimes that will mean suffering Or in this case, isolation or people not thinking you're cool. But you know what? We only need to be cool in the eyes of one, right? So part of that is following God even if it's not easy. Notice it says in the next verse that you don't get credit when you do something that God didn't ask you to do or it wasn't His will and you suffer because of it. In other words, if you bring on harm on yourself due to your own consequences, You know, number one, you don't get credit for it. Number two, you shouldn't blame God for it. How many many of you have met people that have made a wreck of their lives and then they want to put the blame all on God? Where was God? And it's like, well, God didn't make you do that. God didn't stick a gun to your head and tell you to date this person or whatever the, the case may be. So God can help you through it, but the suffering that you did not bring on yourself that you did for God is one thing, but suffering you brought on yourself It's one of those things you have to ask God to help you and deliver you through. So the next verse is quite interesting. Verse 21, it says, "For To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Interesting word, example, in the original Greek, it's the picture of You guys remember when you are in grade school and they had the letters, the ABCs, and you had to trace the letter, trace the line, or write below it? My kids are doing that now. We're in preschool. And the idea is Jesus has already set out the ABCs for your life, and all you have to do is follow in his steps. It's just, you have to be like a student that will follow the steps of what the correct letters are. The challenge is, some of us don't know what Christ would do, because... We haven't spent enough time studying him or being around his people. So whenever you hear, what would Jesus do, it's, were he in your steps? If Jesus were living today, how would he work at your job? How would he be uh, a parent? How would he, he, if he were in your steps, how would he do it? You know, the thing about Jesus is he lived a perfect life, and he never made any mistakes. We, as humans, as sons and daughters, as parents, we make a lot of mistakes, And um, the thing about it is, is Jesus helps us through that, and he shows us grace. And he gives us an example that we should follow in his steps. I've heard it said that humans are like teabags. Your true colors come out when you're put in hot water. Ouch. Suffering brings either out the best in you or the worst in you. And some of us, when we think about following in Christ's footsteps... And we think about suffering and we think about the cross. Sometimes we get pictures that aren't necessarily, um, biblical pictures. I heard the story of this minister. He was in Atlanta and this pastor was showing him his great congregation, his great building. He said, look at these imported pews. The wood is imported from France or wherever it was from. He's like, this is amazing. You see all the decoration. He was showing him his building and the other minister's like, nice, nice. I mean, what do you say? I, you spent too much money or whatever. And he's like, it's nice. Then he took him outside and the sun was setting and it was getting dark. And all of a sudden he pointed to the steeple. And there was this ginormous cross that lit up. And it was had the spotlight on it. And he, he, he pointed the cross. He said, you see that cross? That cross alone cost the church $10,000 and had a big smile. The other minister looked at him and said, you got ripped off. He's like, what? Well, I remember when Christians got those for free. When you had to carry your cross for free. The minister obviously didn't know what to say. But sometimes we get a notion of suffering as this symbol that you know it represents something. But sometimes we don't realize the cross represents suffering. It's not just some great symbol that you know, we wear on a necklace. It points to something else. It points to the fact that Jesus suffered. And he did it for you and I. So to have an overcomer's mentality is whenever you face suffering, I want you guys to write down a verse, it's not on your outline, but it's Philippians 129. It says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So part of suffering is this. None of us would ever choose suffering. But if suffering is chosen for you, then you make the best of it. Some of you right now have physical problems. Your health is not what it used to be. And you wish you could turn back the the clock back to when you were 20. Oh, the good old days when you had no aches and pain. You could eat whatever you want and never gain a pound. And now you're like, man, if you only knew. The hospital visits every week. I'm just tired of it. Some of you have lost loved ones that are no longer here. You remember them sitting right next to you in church and they're not here. And you're suffering because they're not with you anymore. Some of you are suffering at your job. You really don't feel fulfilled. You don't feel like you're in your calling. You don't like your boss. There's many types of suffering in the world. But the thing about it is, I just want you guys to think about it. If there were no suffering in the world, would we long for the perfect world to come? If you never got sick, would you ever long for your perfect body that God has prepared for you? If this world was perfect, would we long for a world that's perfect to come? See, the thing is, is we were created to live in a perfect world. But as you know, we live in a fallen world. But suffering is a symbol pointing us to something better. That suffering is temporary. Your physical sickness is temporary. If you're a believer, one day you'll have a brand new body. One day you won't have those aches and pains. One day, that lost loved one that went on to be with the Lord, you will be reunited. So if it wasn't for suffering... We don't, as Christians, we don't see it as a gift. It's one of those things we would never choose, but if it's chosen for us, we need to say, God, what are you teaching me through this? I've heard it said that if there's all sunshine and no rain, you have desert. And I think sometimes that's true in our own life, and times are only good and only great. Eventually, we sometimes turn away from God when times are good. I wish that weren't true, but sometimes that is the case. So think with the overcomer's mentality. God is going to use all things. So we work as an act of worship. We think of suffering differently. Jesus overcame all and we will overcame all. Number three in his steps is live your life fully alive for the glory of God. Live your life fully alive for the glory of God. Look at verse number 23. It says, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. I want you to think about that. Whenever, this is just kind of a little tip for you guys. Whenever someone insults you, cuts you off in traffic, whenever a family member goes off, you have three responses you can do. The first one is you can overcome evil with evil. That's payback, right? Have you ever thought, I'm going to get that person back? Just be honest, occasionally. Um, I know that's the, the usually the tendency is fight or what? Flight, right? So you can overcome evil with evil. The second response is you can be overcome by evil. That's just when you let everyone get the best of you. You're always defeat defeated. You're just going to hang on till Jesus comes. The world's against me. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. And you go off on a rant that... Everything's bad and everything's going downhill. And it's easy to see that way in this world we live in. I mean, that's why I got rid of cable right now. I'm taking a break because it's negativity all over the place. But the third option, instead of overcoming evil with evil or being overcome by evil, is overcome evil with good. And we get this response in Romans 12. And it says, instead of allowing evil to overcome you, overcome evil by doing good. So I want you to think about Jesus in this passage. Even though he suffered and was persecuted, did he respond in like kind? Did he return insult with insult? No. Jesus was willing to turn the other cheek and to be beaten for us. He was willing to do it because he loved us. And something I love here, it says that, verse 24, he himself bore his sins in his own body on the tree. That we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So I want you to get this picture that every wrong thing you and I did and will do Jesus took on his own self, his own body. And the picture is that whenever a person asks Jesus into their life, as Christians we call that becoming a new believer, becoming born again, experiencing new life, what happens the moment you receive Christ, Jesus nails every sin you've ever done, past, present, and future, to the cross. And it's taken out of your way. So, in the here and now, in our experience, we struggle, we have challenges, we make mistakes. But from God's eternal perspective, if you're in Christ, the book of Colossians says he sees you as pure, blameless, and without fault. Isn't that amazing? I could talk to your spouse and they would give me a different story about you, right? Or if you're a student, I could talk to your parents But if you're in Christ, from an eternal perspective, you're pure and holy without faults. Amen. So that's, that's the beautiful thing about the cross. When you're falling in his steps, it doesn't mean you won't experience suffering. It doesn't mean you won't experience challenging. But it does mean that God is there with you and for you. Look at the next verse. It says, For you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want you to get this picture. You and I often in the Bible are referred to as what? Bah. Sheep. Yeah, if you weren't awake, you are now, right? So I understand that in the highlands of Scotland, uh, there's sheep that have a tendency, whenever they come near to this beautiful grass It's off a cliff, they will jump as far down as 10 to 12 feet to get the special grass. They say the grass is greener on what? The other side for them, it's the other side of the cliff. So they will jump down 10 to 12 feet to get this sweet grass. It tastes better than the other grass, supposedly. And the shepherd was telling the story about how the sheep uh, in Scotland will do that. And they will stay down there for days eating the grass until the grass is all gone. And then the shepherd will wait a few days until the sheep, is completely lying down and just weak and calling out for help. And someone asked the shepherd, why don't you rescue the sheep immediately? And they said, well, the sheep, they're so unintelligent in this regard that if a shepherd went immediately, you know what they would do? They would jump off the cliff. So the shepherd has to wait until all the grass is gone, until all the resources are exhausted, and they're exhausted and they're lying there, and the shepherd will get a rope, Tie it around the sheep and pull it up 10 to 12 feet. Because the sheep can't rescue itself. It's it's It jumped down, it can't jump back. And the shepherd drew the conclusion like this. It's the same way often with us. We go jumping off cliffs of our own demise because we think it's better over here. We'll enjoy it better. And sometimes, unfortunately, we have to hit rock bottom before we'll allow the good shepherd to bring us back up you guys find that's true in your life and people you know? Until the, the friends are gone, until the money is gone, then you call up to God. Because sometimes we think the grass is better here when it's just temporary. And it says in the Bible, the wages of sin is death. But there is pleasure in sin for just a short season. So I want you guys to think about that. Back up to verse 24, there's something I wanted to bring out in the text. It says that by whose stripes you were healed. The interesting thing about that word stripes, in the original language, it's singular. By whose stripe you were healed. And what this refers to is the death of Jesus. He died so that you could live. And there's an amazing paradox. I have a quote from Warren Wearsby I want you guys to see. The paradoxes of the cross never cease to amaze us. Christ was wounded that you could be healed. He died that you might live. And we died with him, and thus we are dead to sin so that we may live to righteousness. So here's the paradox. Whenever we go after a life in and of ourselves, we find death. But whenever we're willing to die to ourself, then and only then do we experience true life. You see the paradox? True life is found when you die to self. You die to your selfishness. You die to what you desire and you go after a higher calling. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Whenever a person accepts Christ, often they give up two bad habits and they're thinking, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I've given up some bad habits and now I hope God just leads me along, right? I just want to live my life. And he says, think about your house, that your life is a living house. Your house is kind of like a living house. And whenever you invite Jesus to come in, he begins to do a remodeling of your house. At first, you think it's simple. You know, you realize in your house your gutters leaking, you realize the shingles are coming off the roof, you realize you know there's certain repairs that need to be made, and you understand that. But eventually, the carpenter begins to knock out walls, and it hurts. He begins to add new floors and new levels in a courtyard, and he begins to completely redesign and remodel your house. So eventually, your house looks completely different. And C.S. Lewis said something amazing. He said, maybe you thought that you were just going to be like a little cottage, but God wanted a palace. So I want you to think about that. When the king of the universe moves into your house, he's a king. Is your life fit for a king? When God moves inside of you, is, is your life fit for a king? Or are you just wanting God to live in a cottage? The king wants your life to look so much like Jesus' life that instead of a cottage, he's trying to design a palace. Amen? So I want you, in conclusion, what does it mean to be fully alive? I talk about live as someone who's fully alive. It's been said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. What does it mean? This is not on your outline, but I want to give you four brief thoughts. Number one... It means that you're fully alive, mind, body, and soul. Some of you are only living partially. And this is for the singles out there if you're not married. A lot of times a young lady or a young man will want to date someone that's not a believer. The thing about it is if they're not a believer, you can only have two-thirds of a relationship. You may have a physical relationship, an intellectual relationship, but their spirit is not living. Their soul is its just, there's no light there. So why would anyone want to have two-thirds of a relationship? So I want to encourage you guys, a human being fully alive, is Jesus makes you alive in every area. And for some of you, the physical is really hard, health issues, all that. But like I said, God is going to make all things new one day. So allow Him to mold and shape you the way He wants to. Number two... He or she can endure temporary trials in exchange for future rewards. A human being fully alive can undergo suffering because he knows that in suffering there's significance. In every trial there's a treasure. In James 1, 2, and 3 it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind because you know that your testing of your faith produces perseverance. God is working out something in your life. And number three... He serves a greater purpose than himself. He's living for the kingdom of God. Isn't it amazing to know that life's not just about you? It's about him and it's about them. It's about God and others. So when you follow in the footsteps of Jesus, you begin to live for a bigger purpose. You begin to live for someone who never dies. I joked around this past Wednesday night. We had Wednesday night service. And I said, you know, people ask me sometimes, what do you do? Sometimes it's awkward, I'm a pastor, because as soon as you say what you do, they get a certain mental image. And I'm like, I'm gonna, I need to reframe that and say something like, you know what, I'm a world changer. I change lives one at a time and just go off on a rant, you know, and they're like, excuse me? But think about it, you guys are world changers. You guys are in the business of changing lives one person at a time. And Jesus is making your cottage into a palace. You know, it says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. He's preparing a place for you in heaven. But right now, he's preparing you for that place. Have You ever thought about that? He's working on your place, but he's working on you. In the New Testament, you are the temple of the living God. He's living inside of you. So here's the, here's the take-home truth I want you guys to think about. If you want to follow Jesus, you must follow in his steps one day one step at a time. So whenever you see the what would Jesus do, I want you to think about that. He's laid an example so that we could follow in his footsteps. And as you guys go to lunch and dinner and family time, here's some questions. Think about it. It's in your bulletin. But the first one is this. Tell me about one time in your life when you experienced suffering. Surely, if you've lived long enough, you've had a time where you experienced suffering. And number two, what did God teach you through this time? If suffering does teach you something, if every trial is meant to be a lesson, what have you learned? And here's the thing, number three, and I think this is so practical. What would happen on Monday, for those of you who are still in the marketplace working, if you saw your job as an act of worship? How would your boss see you differently? I mean, I think there would be workplace revival going on if everyone at Arden First started seeing their job as, as an act of worship, loving God, With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Let's pray together. Father, your word is living. Your word is active. Father, in the very end of our lives, we won't be asked how much we've gotten, but we'll be asked how much we've been given. We won't be asked how much we've won, but how much have we done for you. Not how much we've saved, but how much we've sacrificed. And Father, this is my prayer for for this body of believers, Arden first. That God, we would realize that in all of life, the good and the bad, that you're still good. And Father, right now, just with everyone praying, I want to pray for those who are experiencing suffering. Whether it be physical, whether it be financial, whether it be an emotional situation, a depression, whatever it may be. God, I pray that you would minister to them and that you would speak peace to their hearts and that, God, in the midst of their suffering, that they would see that there's significance in their suffering and that this would point them closer to you because, God, when we're weak, then you are strong. And finally, Father, if there be one here today that doesn't know you, that's never received you, right now, just with everyone praying, there's no magical prayer, it's just your heart reaching out to God. If you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, say something like, Jesus, I need you in my life. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and you rose again. I pray that you would forgive me where I've fallen short of you. And Jesus, make me brand new. Give me that new life that Timothy was talking about. I make you my Lord and Savior. Thank you for a new life. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you that you've left us an example that we can follow in your steps one day and one step at a time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.